All right, let's open our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is week 5 of our eight-part series, What We Value, and today the biblical value of multi-generational ministry. So please stand with me if you can, in honor of God's word. I'm going to read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. God has given us a beautiful picture in the word of multi-generational ministry, multiple generations interacting, and that's how the faith is spread. So let's hear the word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And Lord, we thank you that you have spoken and thank you that you've given us your word. Pray, Lord, that you, by your spirit, through your word, would change us today. Lord, we are gloriously dependent upon your sovereign work. We yield to you, Lord, for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Before we dive into Deuteronomy 6 and multi-generational ministry, let's take a brief quiz. Okay, two questions. First question, what do you think multi-generational ministry is? In your humble opinion, what are we talking about? The first question. Second question, what is your most favorite and least favorite all ages together activity? What's your preference? You know, as summer comes, we brace for change, don't we? Kids out of school, college students home for the summer, longer days, hotter weather, huge increase in, in ice cream intake. Am I right? And more freedom for multiple generations to hang out together, if they so choose. Our values drive our actions. We will be observed doing, living our values, what we are committed to. God-centered worship, your will surrendered to God, praising his glorious grace. Christ-centered preaching, spirit-empowered proclamation, reading and explaining and applying the word of God. God-dependent prayer, ongoing conversation with God, a passion in your heart to pray. Gospel changed relationships, living our unity, a shining testimony of the transforming power of Christ. And then multi-generational ministry. And we're going to follow the same pattern, the same outline we have followed. Why do we value it? What are the barriers? How can we grow? So why do we value it? Why do we value multi-generational ministry? Quite simply, it's because it's God's discipleship plan. It's God's discipleship plan. God is the God of multiple generations. 
the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You see it all through the Bible in general with some notable specifics like Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy comes after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers belonged in large part to the priests and the Levites, but Deuteronomy was for everyone. Repeats many of the things found in those books, shows what the laws meant in everyday life for the people. And we learn from Deuteronomy about loving God and obeying his will. Moses was addressing a new generation in Israel. He was reviewing their past. It's a good thing to do to help understand the present and prep for the future. And he was reminding them of God's guidance in the first three chapters. He was reminding them of God's glory and greatness in chapters 4 and 5. He was reminding them of God's goodness in chapter 6. And in the midst of that, charges them to do several things. That's what we see here in this passage today. First, he told them to love God, verses 4 and 5. Then he tells them, obey God's word, verse 6. And then he says, now teach others to do the same, verses 7 through 9. Multi-generational discipleship. Look at verse 4 with me. Verses 4 and 5 tell us to love God above all. Worship God with everything you've got. Verse 4 begins, Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. It's a well-known lead-in to the great commandment, as Jesus highlighted it, but it was famous before that. The intent was to give absolute statement of the truth of monotheism. There's only one God. He is God alone, no other. You can even translate this, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. One here means unity. Same word you see in Genesis 2.24 of a husband and wife being one flesh. This verse clearly states that God is God alone. Central to biblical theology is the affirmation of the oneness of God. It's known as the Shema, the Hebrew term for here that begins verse 4. Shema, here. It became the Jewish confession of faith. It was recited twice daily by all the devout Jews, along with Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 to 21. And Numbers 15, verses 37 to 41. And in its original context, it set the Israelites apart from the surrounding nations. It was given near a time that they were about to enter the promised land, and they were going to drive out polytheistic tribes that were there, and they would be tempted to adopt pagan gods. The true God, then, now is affirming his uniqueness before sending them into the hornet's nest that was Canaan. They were to have no other gods before him, as he had stated in Deuteronomy 5.7. This was a prohibition grounded in the Shema. Yahweh is God alone. There can be no service to any other so-called God. That was the truth. That's the point. Now, verse 5 flows from verse 4. You look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. To love him with a whole heart, that your will and your purpose was bound up in loving God. And we must love the Lord our God like this because 
No one else is worthy of such love. The only proper motivation to obey God is love. Loving him with all we have and all we are is the great commandment that we are called to fulfill. Jesus upheld it. Matthew 22, verse 36. He's asked, what is the great command? And his answer, the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The great and first commandment. And then he says, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. This sums up everything the law and the prophets say. Jesus upheld the great command, and he did so in its fullest triune sense. There is one true God, manifested in three distinct and separate persons. And if you'd like to follow along, get on our website right now on your device, and I'm ripping this right from our statement of faith. There is one true God, three distinct and separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is God to be worshipped as God. God the Father gave his only begotten Son for sin, hears and answers the prayers of believers in Christ, cares, provides for his children. Jesus Christ, God the Son, God manifested in human form, born of a virgin, sinless, crucified for our sins, resurrected bodily from the dead, ascended to heaven, and coming back. God the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, guides into truth, causes spiritual birth, baptizes believers into the body of Christ, indwells at the moment of spiritual birth, fills and empowers believers for Christian life and service. This is the God we know. This is the God we worship. And to worship God with all you've got, you must believe in Jesus Christ. Contrary to what Bernie thinks. All who reject Jesus do not worship God, and they do stand condemned. Jesus said it in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you. He's praying to the Father. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 1 John 4, 14 says the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so the only thing left to do is what Acts 16, 31 instructs you to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. First and foremost, you must love God. And move on with me to verse 6. Deuteronomy 6, 6 tells us, if you love God, you're going to obey his word. It's exactly what Jesus said in John 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And the idea behind this is that God has spoken authoritatively and sufficiently. But the Jews, they added to it. That wasn't enough for them. There are many today who think they need more. Verse 6 says, these commands, these words I command you today shall be on your heart, your soul, your life, your senses, your affections, your emotions. The idea is that you let the word affect your entire being. How's that going for you? Are you letting the word affect your entire being, or is it just something you listen to on your YouVersion app and check off? Maybe not even listen to as you're listening to it. But they were to think about God's commands. They were to meditate on them. They, they were to have an obedient response based on understanding who God is. 
It's the law written upon the heart, as Jeremiah 31, 33 says. The first essential for Jews was wholehearted commitment expressed in love for God, demonstrated in obedience to God's word as a part of your daily life. To worship God with all you've got and let the word affect your whole being and transform your mind. This is what Deuteronomy is telling us so far. Move on with me to verses 7 and 9, and basically what it says is, then teach that to others. To love God and obey God's word and, and teach others to do the same. In all your life and relationships, pass on the faith. Verse 7 says, you shall teach them diligently. That word means to sharpen a knife. It means to repeat something over and over again. It's like you're talking to your kids, and you're like, how many times do I need to repeat myself? Or maybe your wives are talking to your husbands, saying, how many times do I have to repeat myself? <laughs> Proverbs tells us to, to discipline our children diligently. That's the word. It's to repeat over and over again, to, to sharpen. You're to teach the word of God diligently to whom? To your children, which also can be translated grandchildren or descendants or disciples. You're to talk of them. You're to lead and to guide and to admonish and to console. And you're to do this when you sit in your house, where you dwell, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, when you get up. God's commands were to be the hot topic of conversation inside and outside the home from start to end of day. Not if you get around to it. Not teachable moments. Each moment teachable. Verse 8, you shall bind them. Now we're getting some strong words here. Bind them as a sign on your hand, a sign, a token, a, a banner, a warning. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And the idea behind that is that Jews were to continually meditate on and be directed by God's commands. This was their compass. Now later on, people literally tied boxes with these verses to their, to their hands and foreheads with leather straps. God did not want his word to be jewelry. It was meant to govern their life. Verse 9 says, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That it would be obvious that you follow the one true God and that you reject idols. That it, you, allegiance is clear. It's like flying a flag outside your home. We're to worship God and we're to let the word transform us and, and it's, to, it's to affect all of our life and relationships and we start with those closest to us. Our children and grandchildren and others. The Bible portrays this beautiful, consistent picture of multi-generational, age-integrated, life-on-life engagement spanning the age spectrum and encompassing all life stages. Generational faithfulness is to be the norm, not the exception. Because God's discipleship plan is multiple generations worshiping God and learning his word and spreading the faith, helping people come to Christian maturity under the lordship of Christ. 
Now, if you're a Christian today, it means that you need to love Jesus above all. And not that you say, you know, Jesus is my number one God, but I've got a whole other list. Jesus is the only one. God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the only God you worship. That you see Jesus as your life, as your sufficiency, as your adequacy. That you're not looking for something more. And that you love his word and you hear it and you do it. And you love people enough to give them Jesus and give them the word of God. This is God's discipleship plan. We are to love God and obey the word and teach others to do the same. And as with any good thing in life, there are barriers. Separation is a barrier. Until recently in church history, generations worshipped together. First century churches were multi-generational entities. Children were present for worship and healings and prayer meetings and even perhaps during persecutions. But then the church adapted the ideas of 20th century developmental theorists such as Piaget and Kohlberg and Fowler and created specialized ministries to connect to specific age groups. The ideas were then applied to the worship hour and services were viewed as a time to teach adults. Some people still think this way. And the prevalent age segregation copies the school systems and behavioral theorists. And it shouldn't be the driver, but most don't give it a second thought. It's in the water. The Boston Globe caught on. They wrote an article, What Age Segregation Does to America. And they said that from grade schools to senior villages, we, we spend much of our lives on separate generational islands. Historian Howard Chudikoff wrote, until the late 19th century, age wasn't such a defining fact about people's lives. For most of our country's history, different ages tended to mingle. Families were bigger. Generations worked side by side. Kids and adults got their entertainment at the same county fair. School children were assigned to classes based on how much they knew rather than when they were born. Now, age segregation can be good. I mean, college students like to stay up late. Older people like peace and quiet. But age segregation can breed distrust and prejudice between generations, rob people of the chance to learn from older and younger. I think that God is onto something in Deuteronomy 6, this multiple generations loving God and obeying his word and passing on the faith. Another barrier is extremes. Extremes. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, is quoted in most parenting books. Parents discipling kids in the home, it is the first application. But these instructions weren't given just to parents. They were for all Israel, all ages, all life stages. Deuteronomy 4, 9 says, Make them known to your children and your children's children. It indicates multiple generations were present and the commands were given. For Jews, teach them to your children meant more than we would take it as. To them, it meant not only those of your own body, but all those that are any way under your care and tuition. So to impress on your children the commands of God extends beyond the home and the larger faith community. 
the prevalent extreme is age-segregated ministry, splitting ages and life st stages by default. But in response was another extreme where people say, well, everything must be age-integrated. No youth ministry, no children's ministry. Another extreme. The important thing for us to remember is that God's discipleship plan here in Deuteronomy and throughout the Bible is not one-size-fits-all. There's freedom to choose. When it comes to multi-generational ministry, extreme views are not helpful. Total age segregation or total age integration miss the mark. We need a balance. The Deuteronomy 6 mandate is that God's community is to worship and obey him and spread the faith in all directions. Another barrier, ignorance of what the Bible actually says. The scriptural foundations of multi-generational ministry run deep. You might want to jot Deuteronomy 31, verses 12 and 13 down. Deuteronomy 32, verse 12. Joshua 8, verses 34 and 35. And what you'll notice as you go through the Old Testament is that children were a part of the gathered assembly of God's people. All ages were not just included. They were drawn in, they were assimilated, they were absorbed into the community with a deep sense of belonging. When all Israel gathered, all generations were present. Deuteronomy 29, verses 10 through 12, Moses, when he spoke to Israel for the final time, everybody was there. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 13, Jehoshaphat called for a fast of the entire nation. Everybody was there. Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra read aloud from the book of the law. The entire community was there together. Men and women and all who could understand. They read and explained the scripture from dawn to noon. They stood in respect of God for six hours. I would have brought a stool. <laughs> the Psalms speak of multi-generational ministry. Psalm 71, 18. To old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to those to come. Psalm 78, verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, wonders he has done. Psalm 100, verse 5, the Lord is good, his love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 145, verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Jesus modeled inclusion of all generations, and specifically children throughout his ministry. He drew kids into his teaching. He welcomed them into his presence. And he said that welcoming a child in their presence, into their midst, was like welcoming him. Matthew 18, the disciples asked him, what is the, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? calls to himself a child, puts him in the midst of them and says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In Mark chapter 10, parents were bringing their children to Jesus that he might touch them and bless them and the disciples rebuked them and Jesus saw it and was indignant and he said, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And what Jesus was modeling for us is including children in a context that excluded them. Paul, when he wrote to churches, asked for the letters he wrote to be read aloud to the gathered community. 
addresses a wide range of generations. And at one point, two points, he directly speaks to children. Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3. He expected them to be there to hear what God said. But throughout the word of God, a believer's stated purpose is to declare the glory of God to the next generation. And one more barrier that really kind of plays into them all and gets deeply rooted are attitudes. Attitudes like children should be seen and not heard, or children get nothing out of the worship service, or no adults allowed, or no kids allowed, or we learn best with our peers, or we don't want distractions. Unbiblical attitudes breed unbiblical actions based on unbiblical thinking. And so we need to grow. There's a lot to commend here at Grace Church, and I'll let the Holy Spirit do the correcting, but how can we grow with the goal to align with God's plan, reach more people with the gospel? If you want to grow in this value of multi-generational ministry, first you have to embrace it. You can't just put up with it and say, well, I guess I just have to do this. You've got to fully embrace being a part of multi-generational ministry as your God-given privilege and duty. And it doesn't mean we throw out everything we learn from developmentalists or, or that age-appropriate ministry isn't valuable. But it means this. The normative practice should be generations together and passing the faith on to one another. And you've got to create space for that to happen. The default is multi-generational ministry. You add in age-specific ministry to taste. Instead of what many churches do, a lot of churches see families as, like a butcher sees a cow. <laughs> see, you know, a butcher sees a cow and is like, wow, look at all those choice cuts of meat. And many churches look at a family walking up and go, wow, a man, man for the men's ministry, a woman for the women, women's ministry, children over here, youth over here. Got to see the whole cow. Have a cow. You also need to encourage multi-generational ministry. By the way, it's not hard to get multiple generations in the same room. I mean, we are right now, right? It's difficult to get them talking with each other. To deeply invest in each other's lives. To encourage each other. To pray for each other. Not just in the same room, but walk across the room and get to know each other. Our home group is like that. And grace practices a good balance of multi-generational ministry. On Sunday mornings, there's a reason we have one kind of service three times. Because we, all, we want all ages, all generations to be together. Now, some churches don't allow kids to be in the service. We want them here. We want kids to know they're a viable part of the church. They're special. They're important. And by the way, they will get out of the service what they can get on their level, like you do. We've got home groups. That they're multi-generational. Many of our missions trips are multi-generational. So are many of our women's and men's gatherings. Not all, but some are. As church leaders, we are committed to encouraging multiple generations to worship and learn and serve together. We want to support people of all ages and all stages of life, whether that be that singleness or marriage or parenting or extended family. If you want to grow in this value, you've also got to engage in it. And I'm going to give you lots of action steps today 
If you want to worship God alone and hear and do his word and teach others to do the same, pass on the faith, help others grow, it's got to start in your heart, in your, in your home, and with the gathered body of Christ. Let's talk about the home. you got to start at home base. It's like concentric circles. What's closest to you and then moving out from there. Don't leapfrog over those closest in search of something more significant because there isn't. Your family needs what I call daily family worship. Your household needs daily family worship for Christ's sake because that's how faithful generations are built. God intends your children and your grandchildren to hear his word primarily and most consistently in your voice. It's like a baton. It's like a relay race. How weird would it be in a re relay race if the runner passes to the wrong team? Or worse, keeps going and doesn't pass to his teammate? DQ. You pass it on because you are only passing through. And by the way, if everything in God's word is to affect everything in our lives, then we need to teach our children everything in God's word. Systematically, the whole counsel of God. I think that's what Paul was getting at with Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 when he said that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. He said this right after he says to Timothy, I know where you learned the faith from Lois and Eunice, from your mom and your grandma. And he learned it from Paul too. Jesus said, when he was upholding the Shema, love God, and then he says, and love your neighbor. It's all summed up in that. Now the closest neighbor that you have are the ones that are living in the next room, down the hall, in your own household. You ever pray the Lord's Prayer? It's biblical. And we pray, Lord, forgive us as we forgive others. You've got to apply that in your own heart, in your own relationships, in your household first. That's where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. And by the way, with regard to parenting, if I might, I have five kids, and I am by no means an expert, but I'm your buddy, not your authority parenting, helicopter parenting, overindulgent parenting, Attachment parenting, I'm going to ignore your sinful lifestyle and pretend you're fine parenting, not biblical. What you've got to do is, is, is aim big and focus small. What you've got to do is commit to a daily time in the word and prayer in your household. Now, if you live alone, you're already doing that. But if you don't live alone, you need to commit to a daily time in the word and prayer with your household. Worship God together at home on a daily basis. That you pray together, that you, you get into the word together, and maybe you even sing together. You're to do with those you live with what Christians do. You don't just wait till you get here. It should be the overflow of what's already happening. And we all need more time in the word, don't we? I've got a friend named Alan who rides a motorcycle every day. And he has leather riding boots. And the other day, I said, 
nice boots. He goes, well, I just got them several months ago. I'm like, well, they look brand new. And he tells me that his old boots would always get scuffed a lot. But he would just polish them whenever they got really bad. But then he got a new pair of boots a few months ago, and he decided to look at them every day and polish any scuffs. And now what's happened is there's a buildup of polish on the shoes. They don't get as many scuffs. And the more you pay attention to your soul, and the more you pay attention to your household and others, and the more you love God first and bring the word to bear on everything and help others do the same, you're going to notice a greater strength and patience and steadiness and resiliency in your life. There's going to be less scuffs. You've also got to practice this with the church. Worship God together as a family with God's family. We welcome all ages into our worship gatherings. We've got amazing children's and youth ministries, and we've got amazing worship services. But the worship service sets the tone for everything else. God's plan of discipleship is love Jesus above all, obey God's word, teach others the same, lather, rinse, repeat. Include all ages and life stages in the home and in God's household. But if we don't model it during our primary gathering every week, is it going to automatically happen in our homes? What better time for families to be together than worshiping God with fellow believers? In a world that consistently pulls families apart, the church can put them together. One writer, Christina Embry, said that intergenerational worship gives families more time to spend together, an endangered moment in this day and age. Quoted a 4,000 family study that showed on average that, that families spend 49 minutes together daily, not in front of a screen, separate activities, different rooms of a house. Another study said that it's actually 36 minutes a day. Now you can more than double that with one worship service together. How's that for efficiency? Huh? We welcome people of all ages, life stages, and noise levels. Within reason. Please take out fussing babies and snoring adults. What else can you do with the church? You can join a home group or a Bible class where your, 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 your multiple generations can be together. Join a home group where your whole family can participate. Help others grow. You can pray for someone else's marriage and family. Help someone else who's struggling. Meet with someone to help grow in their faith and forget about your comfort and do what God says. Because you want to honor what God lays down for us in the word, both in your home and in the church. And by the way, to the ends of the earth. Consider how you might dive in. Consider helping or teaching children or youth or adults in both organized or organic settings. Consider being a part of our weekly park night outreach, our monthly bike ministry or Mexico trip, or longer cross-cultural outreach. Look for and commit to and plan to be a part of a faith-stretching, cross-cultural, multi-generational outreach. You want to boil it down, I'll make it really simple for you. Just think of one way that you can engage in multi-generational worship, learning, or serving. It will not happen unless you're intentional. 
There's an old gardening proverb that goes like this. Weeds grow of their own accord. Flowers must be planted. The world opposes the gospel at every turn, and it requires effort to see results. Weeds are always going to be in abundance. A good seed must be planted and protected and cultivated. Now, it's clear here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as well as throughout the whole Bible, that God wants all ages to love him and obey him and help others do the same. If you really think about it, everything in life boils down to that. It encompasses evangelism and discipleship and everything in between. I love the fact that we are purposefully a multi-generational family focused on loving Jesus with all our hearts. I love that all ages have opportunities to spend together and encourage each other and spur one another on to love and good deeds. And there are challenges to multiple ages worshiping and learning and serving together. It's not easy, it's not quiet all the time, but there are many beautiful outcomes. And it's not a guarantee. We do what we're called to do, God does what only he can do. He saves souls, he calls people to himself, he brings people to repentance, he opens people's hearts to the gospel. Luke 150 says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You know, the Bible gives us some shining examples of multi-generational faithfulness. I think of Paul and Timothy. I think of Lois and Eunice and Timothy. I think of Paul telling Titus to interact with multiple generations in the church. But we also have in the Bible some tarnished ones. Parents who failed to pass on the faith. Eli and his sons. I even think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with all their faults and foibles and failings. And what we see over and over again is that God works in spite of man's sin. He is faithful. We are called to pass on to the next generation what we have received, however imperfectly we do so. As we bring it in for a landing here, remember, multi-generational ministry is God's discipleship plan. Every Christian loving God and obeying the word and teaching others of all ages to do the same. And remember that try as we might, we cannot perfectly keep the command to love God and obey him and teach others to do the same. Proverbs 23, 26 says, my son, give me your heart. That's what Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is all about. The deepest foundation of our heart relationship with God. The Lord is one. This became the biggest confession in Judaism. But Adam couldn't keep it. Israel couldn't keep it. And Jesus was the son who gave God his heart. In our place. Who lived out the response perfectly fulfilling the command. He heard, he loved, he did the will of God. And so through Jesus, we do it. Because when we come to Christ, we give God our heart. In Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine be done. He quotes the psalmist, I delight to do your will, O God. The only one to fully obey this command is Jesus. No one, no matter how devoted we are to God, can live up to this high standard. We fail to love him as he commanded us. We need an atonement. We need the one who has loved God with his whole being to be our advocate with the Father. And there is Jesus Christ standing between us and the Father our advocate, our substitute, our perfect righteousness. 
so that we could rejoice in God's goodness and greatness. We're in this together. One big, beautiful, multi-generational, messy conglomeration of sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ. And our Lord is strong. Our destiny is sure. Our calling is clear. And we are to embrace it. We are to encourage it. We are to engage in it with our hope fixed on Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your greatness and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that because of Jesus, because of what he has done at the cross, because of his shed blood, we have hope. And we thank you and we praise you in his name. Amen.